Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. I happen to be a real estate broker with Halstead, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's a show about the texture and vibe of our amazing city. On most programs, like tonight's, Rediscovering New York focuses on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy, what makes that particular New York neighborhood really special. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, and sometimes with musicians, artists, and some other interesting neighborhood personalities. Sometimes we host shows about an interesting part of theme of the city that's not focused on a particular neighborhood. Uh, if you've tuned in before, you know we've talked about the history of U.S. presidents who came who lived in New York, who came or who lived in New York. Uh, we've talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. Uh, we've talked about the history of Irish immigrants. We had some special episodes around LGBT history and the movement during Stonewall 50. And we've even explored the history of bicycles and cycling. And uh, some of you know, a couple of weeks ago, we even had a show on the history of punk in New York, fulfilling a long promise that I made to, to you all. And what a show that was. In the future, we might journey to some of the city's parks or the subway or look into a particular social or political movement or another musical genre. Actually, next week, we're going to be hosting a show on the history of opera in New York. We're going to have some special guests for that one. After the broadcast, you can hear each show on podcast. We're on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. By the way, the Punk and New Wave show is episode 35, for those who can't get enough of uh, the good old days of the 70s in New York music. Uh, tonight, we're going to explore and journey to a very interesting neighborhood. It's one that a lot of people don't go to very often, but some people do and really uh, appreciate and love it. It's the neighborhood that's in the northernmost part of the island of Manhattan, and that's inward, although it's not the northernmost neighborhood of Manhattan, which we'll talk about in a little bit. My first guest is a Rediscovering New York regular and our special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, and he provides creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the interview. David is the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. He has a series called Room at the Top. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing network seri networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings, and I've been lucky enough to actually be on some of these events. David has written and has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine, and he's just uh, completed a new blog, which we'll also talk about. David, a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Great to be here, as always. Um, you're a regular, and a lot of our listeners know about your background, but as we have a growing number of listeners, some don't. Um, you're from the New York area, but not from the city itself. No, I, I uh, spent my first years out in Long Island, near Port Jeff, and then uh, moved into the city after college. Uh, currently, I'm living in the Hudson River Valley. How did you get interested in architectural history? Uh, full disclosure, David and I uh, hail from the same college, from Vassar College, and had uh, some of the same teachers in our, in our histories. But uh, what, how did you get passionate about architectural history? Well, uh, my mother was an artist, and she always created sort of dioramas and pictures of the places that we were going to see. And I think that kind of awakened my eye, as it were, to um, cities and architecture. Uh, we were also, uh, myself and my three siblings were the first uh, paid docents at a historic museum in New York State. Uh, we worked as costumed interpreters, children costumed interpreters, at the old Bethpage site, which is a historic reconstruction of a village. So while we were there, it was a chance to kind of learn about and sort of fall in love with the, the built environment on Long Island, the historic part of it from the Dutch colonial times onwards. And then as I grew up and grew older, I grew more and more interested in architecture, in urbanism, um, in interiors, exteriors, what have you. It just became really a lifelong passion of mine. Hmm. And we'll talk about Landmark Branding, your company, a little bit later in the broadcast. Um, moving to Inwood, um, the first thing about Inwood that separates it from <clears throat> most, excuse me, but not all New York neighborhoods, 
is it's actually bounded on three sides by water. Yes, it is. Uh, the Hudson River to the west, Spoyton Divale Creek to the north, and the Harlem River to the east. And Spoyton Divale is, of course, one of the most uh, intriguing train station stops on the Metro North Line up the Hudson. Um, the uh, translation of that appears to be from the Dutch spite the devil or the devil spout. Uh, there's a little bit of a, a kind of a confluence of theories there. Uh, there is a legend that during the American Revolutionary War, a drummer boy working on the American side tried to swim across the river in order to alert the troops. And the current was too strong for him, and it drowned him. But before he did, uh, was pulled under, he let out one trumpet blast on his bugle, and that was enough to kind of let them know that something was headed their way. But that could be apocryphal. Well, well, speaking of olden times in, uh, in that part of, of New York, uh, there's some very important New York, or I actually should say New Netherland history, that actually took place on land that would one day become part of Inwood. Yes, on May 24th of 1626, at least according to legend, Peter uh, Minuit, who was the director general of the Dutch colony of New Netherland, um, therefore the, the sort of technically overseeing the founding of New Amsterdam and all of the Dutch colonies therein, bought the island of Manhattan from the Lenape Indians for 20, uh, sorry, 60 Dutch guilders, about the equivalent then of the, let's say, $22 or so. Um, on the southern tip of the island, Minuit founded New Amsterdam, which later became modern-day New York and grew to later encompass the area known as Inwood. There is a plaque on a rock marking what is believed to be the spot of the sale in Inwood Hill Park. So uh, it's uh, there to this day. But again, um, there are some arguments as to whether or not the, the sale occurred at that point and if these were the people involved. Oh. Uh, you know, I've been to Inwood Hill Park, but I've, I've not seen the marker. <laughs> it's small. <laughs> I've got to seek it out the next time I'm up there. Um, well, like a lot of Manhattan, David, there was action that this part of the, the island saw during the Revolutionary War. In fact, uh, there was an archaeological dig that, that uncovered a very interesting encampment from those uh, 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 horrible people we learn about in elementary school, the Hessian mercenaries who were uh, paid by King George III to uh, help wrest independence from us or crush it. Exactly. During the British occupation of Manhattan during that time, uh, the American Revolutionary War, there was evidently an encampment containing more than 60 huts occupied by Hessian troops between 201st and 204th Streets along what is now Payson Avenue. The camp was discovered in 1914 by a local archaeologist and historian named Reginald Bolton after a series of digs around the neighborhood. This was when Inwood itself was in the process of being rapidly developed, and there was a lot of excavation going on. So there, is some, uh, there was some concrete evidence that was overturned about that. Is there any place, did they uh, retain remnants of this dig? Did they move them somewhere? Are they still there? To I believe there are some artifacts in the New York Historical Society. I don't think there's anything on site, per mm. se. So, Well, that would actually be quite expensive to just keep sites that were, uh, you know, if you discover things well, and not, not build on them. This is right. talking about Manhattan real estate. Um, the area must have been farmland for some of the longest time that there would have been farmland on the island. When would we have begun to see the subdivision of the land in what would become Inwood and the beginning of some kind of town-style living? Well, the, the tip of Inwood was probably the last place in Manhattan to be developed. And it stayed rural really through the 19th century and into the early 20th century, uh, dominated by farmland in the valley. There were about a half dozen large estates to the west up where the bluffs are that overlooked the Hudson River. Everything down in the valley was simply farmland. Um, once the New York City subway's one train reached Inwood in 1906, speculative developers kind of moved in, and they began to construct the apartment buildings on the east side of Broadway. Uh, construction continued into the 1930s when the A train reached Dykeman and 207th Streets along Broadway, and then the largest estates west of Broadway, which were the Seaman and Dykeman and Sham estates, etc., were sold off, and they were developed in the late 1930s. So they were replaced by a series of art modern buildings, uh, many of which are still there, and some of which are now part of a historic district themselves. Mm. 
Well, I'm going to throw you a little bit of a trick question, and I know we're going to get a, a discance look from you here. Uh, what was was there a difference in the way that the neighborhood was developed when um, the first subway came up there, the Broadway line, which became the one line, versus when the A train uh, came up there in the early 30s? Somewhat because the the later buildings were, of course, more modern. Uh, they were also a little bit more spacious. They were geared, I think, towards a more kind of upper middle class clientele. Um, they were very aware of the fact that that particular part of the, the of Inwood had been sort of seen as aristocratic. So there were plantings and sort of gardens incorporated into the base of some of the later buildings that gives them a very sort of beautiful, very sort of garden-like appearance. I think the earlier buildings tended to be more, I mean, they're perfectly respectable, but they're more sort of work-a-day. So, uh-huh. yeah, they're more sort of like, okay, here's the apartment house. Live in it, you know. No elevators. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, not many. Not the, the, the other buildings, they weren't quite Park Avenue. No one was thinking that they were, but they were definitely more sort of elegant, mm. I think. Well, speaking of there had been a place of estates, uh, one of the biggest estates that was subdivided was the Seaman Drake estate. Yes. Um, that was actually, I believe, the largest estate in Inwood at the time. It stood close to present-day 216th Street. Uh, it was the home of the Seaman family, and they were notable for being the family. They were a family of doctors, and they were the ones who first introduced the smallpox vaccine to the United States. Uh, they constructed a very large house that served as a family residence. It passed through several generations. Um, it was a marble villa. It had a very impressive, rather lighthouse-like tower, and it stood atop a bluff where the Park Terrace Gardens complex now stands. Park Terrace Gardens is itself uh, architecturally a very notable series of buildings in the high kind of art modern style that I mentioned. They're very beautifully done. Um, the mansion was reached via a very long driveway that came up from the river area where boats might have docked uh, back in the day and where the trains ran in front of it now. And that is actually framed by a marble arch, the Seaman Drake Arch, which still remains. It's heavily decayed, unfortunately. Uh, And it's been incorporated into what was, until recently, I believe, an auto body shop. Um, It is owned by um, a person who says that they absolutely want to preserve it. They will never let it come down. Um, But recent plans to convert it into a nightclub or restaurant have really come to to nothing. And the structure itself is actually not landmarked, which is rather odd, uh, given its prominence, its history, and kind of architectural uh, importance. It is one of only two freestanding arches in New York City, uh, Manhattan, I should say, the other one obviously being the Washington Square Arch. And uh, it's still quite architecturally impressive, even in its current state. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting if you uh, are walking along Broadway uh, right there at about 210th Street, I think. And it, it yeah, about, it's not yeah. it it's not an arch only on its own. It's sort of set behind a body shop. <laughs> yes, and uh, uh, the commercial uh, buildings kind of come up in front of it. And we're looking at a picture of it right now. Our listeners mm-hmm. can't see it, but it uh, is uh, it's quite substantial. Uh, but you can only see sort of the top third of it where the arch is. And there's graffiti, and uh, it's uh, clearly not maintained well. I would have thought that the Landmark Preservation Commission would have landmarked this. It, there was a move to landmark it, I think, about 10, 10, or, mm-hmm. 10 years ago or so, and it just sort of fizzled out. So maybe mm-hmm. it will be revisited. It would be something that I think would be you know, a, an excellent kind of target for the Landmark Commission, particularly since the owner himself seems to be for Mm. preserving the arch in some way. Uh, The arch also incorporates original buildings into it. It was built as a place for servants to live, except and so forth. There's an office in the arch. So it actually, even if you removed the the additional structures, the auto body shop, it's still actually a building. It has space in it. So Mm. it could be a very, very interesting adaptive reuse kind of project for the right developer or buyer. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network 
Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York, and my first guest, David Griffin, who's also Rediscovering New York's special consultant. David, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Landmark Branding and what you do in the area of uh, architecture? Sure thing. So I founded Landmark Branding back in 2013. Uh, I'd spent many years as an arts consultant working for the firm of Thomas & Associates, and then I uh, took it full-time about three or four years ago. Uh, and what I do is I provide marketing support for brokers, for developers, um, for architects and design firms, and for the uh, owners of historic and architecturally significant buildings in and around New York City. Um, I have written for the press uh, several times on conservation, renovation, restoration, and lead certification efforts. Uh, I have an article coming out actually in Brownstoner that I'm very proud of. It's a, a history of 10 Montague Terrace, one of the um, oldest and most intact brownstones in the entire city, an absolutely magnificent mansion. Uh, and I am developing a book proposal on the history of the penthouse as an American architectural type. Uh, fascinating subject. I have a series of um, illustrated talks that I give, which I've actually given for you, Jeff, a yeah. couple of times. Great talk. Yeah. Great talk. So one on that, one on the studio apartment, exploring, uh, creating a, a, a sort of a, a talk on the history of the brownstone itself, again, as an architectural type. And um, what I do, I do everything from bios to VIP events. I do uh, marketing text. I do website text um, and help create sort of branding initiatives for people who want to accentuate architecture, whether it's residential or commercial. And if one of our listeners wanted to contact you, they could reach you through? Through uh, my website is landmarkbranding.com. I also have a blog called Every Building on Fifth. It can be accessed through the website. It's a picture and a brief history of every single building on Fifth Avenue from the Washington Square Arch up to the Great Harlem Armory, one of the greatest Art Deco buildings actually in New York. I'll have to check it out. Um, moving back to Inwood and also landmarks, um, one of the most uh, well-known landmarks uh, and one of the oldest buildings on the island is actually in Inwood. It's the Dykeman Farmhouse. Yes, it is the last remnant of the farms that used to be down in the valley in Inwood. Um, it's not like the mansions that used to cluster on the Hudson at all. For one thing, it's much older. Uh, it predates the entire period of the estates. Uh, the Dykeman House was built by William Dykeman in, in or around 1785. It was built to actually replace a house that was burned during the American Revolution that possibly dated back to around 1740 or so. Uh, it's the oldest remaining farmhouse on Manhattan, and it is the only real example of the Dutch colonial architecture on Manhattan. There are a few other buildings that show this out in Long Island where the Dutch also settled, uh, but this is the only example in uh, Manhattan Island. It's located at a small park now at Broadway and 204th Street. It's a field stone house with wooden gables. It's very charming. Um, it, very interestingly, it was inhabited by the Dykemans up until around 1868, 1869 or so. It was leased out. It fell into disrepair. And then something happened that I think is kind of unique almost in the history of such houses. It was uh, purchased back by the Dykeman family, and it was restored in the early 20th century by two ladies 
Lees, descendants of the Dykemans, the Mrs. Dykeman, and was gifted to New York City in 1916, this is a long time ago for this type of activity, as the earliest museum of Dutch colonial life in the city, and I believe the very first house museum in New York City, oh, wow. predating even the opening of the old <laughs> merchant's house, uh, which is down in Greenwich Village, of course. And it's on its original uh, location. Yes, it is. And it's it's really sort of interesting to see how the land must have shrunk around the city. The fact that it, 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 really the fact that this building has survived at all is is uh, nothing short of miraculous. I think if the Mrs. Dykeman hadn't stepped in in the early 1910s, there'd be no question that it would either have been moved to another site entirely or it would simply have been demolished. Yeah. Um, it has been extensively restored and reinterpreted in, uh, beginning 2003. So it's really a, a beautiful little sort of time capsule and very much repays a visit. And, you know, as much as I love the city's history and I've been to a lot of places, I have not been to the Dykeman Farmhouse. So mm. it's, uh, it's, it's on my list and it's going to be put higher on it. Um, speaking of great New York landmarks and also uh, those that have stone as part of them, uh, if you ask New Yorkers uh, a question, what architecture do we have from the Middle Ages in New York? People would look at you kind of strange and say, we don't have a Middle Age city. We don't have Middle Age architecture. But although not originally constructed here, we do have not only some structures, but some complete structures in New York that were built by in the Middle Ages, in fact, by Europeans. And they are sort of included in a structure on the edge of the neighborhood. Yes, it is the cloisters. Um, many people may be uh, familiar, obviously, with the cloisters. Uh, it is really just one of those kind of singular buildings and singular collections in New York City. Um, whether or not it's actually situated in what is sort of open to interpretation. Some people say yes, some people say no, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, but the cloisters really dominate Inwood in the sense that they are visible from almost any point in the valley part of the neighborhood. And they are a significant kind of punctuation mark, if you will, to Fort Tyrant Park, which is you know one of the glories really of the area. Uh, it's one of the world's most significant collections of medieval art located outside of Europe, and it is the location of the famed Flemish Hunt of the Unicorn Tapestries, which uh, I think people are uh, familiar with just through their reproduction, but are the you know, extraordinary significant works of tapestry art, um, which depict the, the hunting and capture of a unicorn uh, sometime during the medieval period. Um, it's an adjunct collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It serves actually as their chief medieval holding, so there are some medieval works of art within the main branch of the Metropolitan Museum of Art of Fifth Avenue. The cloisters itself is located in a building that was commissioned by the Rockefeller family to incorporate fragments of historic monasteries and other religious buildings salvaged from Europe. There are four separate cloisters, all taken from medieval sites in France, that were actually acquired by a very eccentric artist during the early 19th century, and then were acquired by Mr. Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller Jr., when he found out about this. He was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So he created the cloisters to house these objects, and also he bought the collection of the artist and then he merged it with his own collection and that became the nuclear for what is now I think one of the really the great museum experiences in the world and certainly in the city uh, it's uh, traveling around it I always feel like I need about a half hour for my eyes to adjust and then you begin to really see the beauty of medieval art because it's very attenuated it's very it's very stylized it's not naturalistic it's not intended to be naturalistic uh, but it really is a, a spectacular way to spend um, a long afternoon and even from the neighborhood perspective to see it when you uh, well sometimes you can access it on 191st street but if you are coming from the inward side it's this you know incredible structure on a hill it just beckons yes. you and it's it's you know yeah. uh, it reminds me very much of the uh, cathedral in durham in, in england just very kind of similar uh similar look and feel about it um and of course it's in, in it's in fort tryon park and across the street uh across actually dykeman street from from fort tryon is inwood hill park uh it's the oldest it contains the oldest forest on the island of manhattan it's really an extraordinary place. Yes, 196 acres. Um, Inwood Hill Park is unlike any other park in New York City. Um, it's very densely folded. It's a, what they call a glacial 
topography. You see the evidence of the glaciers actually passing over the rocks and striations of that hill. It's the highest point, I believe, in Manhattan and one of the highest points in New York City that's not part of the Bronx, Bronx being part of the mainland, of course. Um, the park itself was preserved kind of at the very last possible minute. There was some development that occurred in it. There were a series of mansions, including two that were owned by the Strauss family, the famous uh, owners of um, Abraham and Strauss, who died on the Titanic disaster. Um, the houses have all gone. Uh, there was an orphanage. I believe that burned as well. Very, very little remains of that period. But what did remain, and somehow, I, I really don't know how this happened, what remained was the core of about a 40-acre old-growth forest that actually has never been logged or taken down in any way, shape, or form. It's Manhattan's only primeval forest. It is one of the very, very few primeval forests left in any city in the world. I, I, it might be unique. I'd have to look into it, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the only one. I, I was in Wood Hill Park for the first time a couple of years ago, actually on an Independence Day, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's it's much much different from the feeling of um, New York's of, of Manhattan's largest park, Central Park. It really has a very wild feel to it. There are trails and that are uh, almost not people made. They also have caves in them too. I mean, they're not very yes. big caves, yes. but they're but they're caves nevertheless. The caves actually did host the Lenape people when they lived on Manhattan Island, and I believe some of them are preserved as Native American archaeological sites. Um, it also contains what is now the Inwood Hill Nature Center, uh, which is seeking to kind of, you know, the ongoing rehabilitation of the entire area, the kind of stabilization of its natural features. Uh, Manhattan's only saltwater marsh is part of Inwood Hill Park, and the Inwood Hill Nature Center is also reintroducing eagles into the area. So um, that's something for bird watchers to kind of take into account. The park really is in need of um, certain restoration uh, projects. Uh, a Part lot of, of it was it is, pretty yeah. run down when I was up there. I mean, it, it added yeah. to its mystery, but it was yeah. on a, a, a beautiful, bright summer day. So it didn't. It, uh, it's sort of one of those things where, you know, you realize that it has to be kind of taken. Uh, you have to kind of take it on its own terms. It's also a natural environment that needs to be protected in a way that the other parks can be sort of spruced up. This is something where you really don't want to spruce it up too much because part of the, the, the glory of it is the fact that it's a natural environment entirely. So. Well, as it was one of the, the highest point in Manhattan, there was also a fort, uh, a revolutionary era fort that was, that was in uh, the park originally. Yes, Fort Cockhill, an 18th century military fortification located on what was called Cox's Hill or Tubby Hook Hill, uh, which is where present day Inwood Hill Park. It was a small circular earthwork structure, about 10 or 12 feet high, equipped with two cannons. It was situated at the northwestern extremity of the hill itself, overlooking both the Hudson River and the Harlem River Valley. It was built by the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War uh, as an outpost of Fort Tyron, which was itself an outpost of Fort Washington to the south, along with a strongly fortified position on Laurel Hill, which was renamed Fort George after capture by the British. Well, we all know how that went. <laughs> uh, there was a four-gun redoubt commanding the Kingsbridge Road, born to the east, provided the rebel defense of the then sparsely populated northern Manhattan areas. Um, on the morning of November 16, 1776, during what became known as the Battle of Fort Washington, the fort was attacked and captured by a battalion of Hessian grenadiers who were serving with the British Army. Uh, thus, the encampment that we mentioned uh, before, just a little further to the mm -hmm. south. In July of 1781, George Washington and his generals surveyed the forts of northern Manhattan from nearby points in the Bronx. Um, it's thought that Washington was preparing to reclaim the captured forts, but by that time the fort showed signs of neglect, as reflected in Washington's observation that, quote, the fort on Cox's Hill was in bad repair and but little dependence placed on it. There is neither ditch nor freezing, and the northeast corner appears quite easy of access. Uh, the attack never materialized. The fort was actually held by the British until the war ended in 1783. Hmm. Well, with a little more recent history, what was the Dykeman Oval? The Dykeman Oval was um, actually at the, the area around Dykeman Street and 10th Avenue. It was a stadium, a capacity of 4,500 spectators, which hosted football games, uh, boxing matches, and quite interestingly, one of the most interesting sort of sports um, teams, I think, in our nation's history, uh, the Negro League, uh, which was uh, an African-American baseball team. And it played baseball games there until it was replaced by public housing in the 1950s. Hmm. 
Inwood has been a neighborhood of, of different kinds of communities, of immigrant and ethnic communities. What, what communities have made Inwood their home since the neighborhood was developed? Uh, the residents of Inwood were substantially of Irish descent for much of the 20th century. Uh, the neighborhood exhibited a very strong Irish identity. There were many Irish shops. There were pubs. Uh, there was a Gaelic football field in Inwood Hill Park. The second largest group during the time was Jewish, an extension of the large Jewish population of Washington Heights. Uh, that was a very significant place for Jewish residents in New York City during that time. Uh, today, and there were a lot of Holocaust survivors who moved to Washington. Uh, I can't Inwood. imagine um, uh, today, it's predominantly Dominican, uh, especially in the areas east of Broadway. It actually has the highest concentration of residents of Dominican descent in New York City. So Hispanic residents make up nearly 74% of Inwood's population as a whole, according to census data. And nearly half the residents were born outside the U.S., which is also uh, kind of a significant point in terms of how populations are sort of turning over. Well, that's one thing about New York City in general is that since uh, at least since the middle of the of the 19th century, uh, a very high percentage of the city's population, I think in excess of 40 percent, was actually not born in the United States. Exactly. Which is a very, testament to uh, very this, much a city of immigrants, a gateway city yes. uh, from tip from from stem to stern, really. Yes. Almost, uh, I'm going to say, from sea to shining sea. From, right, right. <laughs> from, from river to shining river and yes, the from, bay from, to salt marsh. From, from, from salt marsh to Spoit and Divel. Yes. Well, uh, David Griffin of Landmark Branding, thank you so much for being our first guest on our show about Inwood tonight. And uh, you can reach David and his company uh, at dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. Excellent. Well, we'll be back in a moment, and when we come back, we're going to speak with a resident and a business owner in Inwood. Uh, stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Thanks. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m. we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. You're back to Rediscovering New York and our program about Inwood, which is at the top of Manhattan Island and not the top of uh, uh, the neighborhood. One thing we didn't talk about with David is that uh, uh, the northernmost neighborhood in Manhattan is actually Marble Hill, which is now in the Bronx. Mm. Uh, people may say, how is the neighborhood in the Bronx? Uh, well, uh, the neighborhood used to be on Manhattan Island, but when they dug the uh, Harlem Shipping Canal and they made that really big wide river that's up there now, they filled in um, uh, the creek, and uh, according to law, which I have to learn about as a real estate agent, uh, the, the land still remained in the borough of Manhattan, so in the county of New York, which it still is today. But Inwood is the, uh, on the map, it's the neighborhood that's at the northernmost tip of the island. Uh, support from Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646 330 4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka. Tom specializes in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Rediscovering New York is about New York, especially its neighborhoods. 
Even though I work in real estate, one thing our show is not about is the business of real estate. But there is a really good one. It's called Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, who's my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. It can be heard at voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like this show on Facebook. Uh, it's called Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. You can follow me on Instagram, Jeff Goodman NYC. And if you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. And one of the note before we get to our second guest, even though this is not a show about real estate in New York, when I'm not hosting this show, I am a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our second guest is a resident of Inwood, and he's also a business owner. Uh, Tom Bosco is the co-owner of the Indian Road Cafe. Tom has lived in Inwood for seven years. He moved to this neighborhood in January of 2012. Prior to that, he lived on 93rd Street and Broadway for 17 years, and he grew up in New York, but grew up in upstate New York. As a resident of Inwood, Tom is very much involved in the community. In 2016, he created New York City's premier chili cook-off, which we're going to have to ask him about, <laughs> called the, New York, the NYC Chili Bowl. Now in its fourth year, the event attracts New York City's best chili makers, all proceeds for the event go to the Inwood Food Pantry and a local women's shelter. Tom is also an ad veteran with extensive advertising sales experience, accentuated by online. We're going to talk to him about that, too. Uh, in particular, he also has online video experience. He helped pioneer the online video revolution that has overseen the launches of AOL Video, MSN Video, and MySpace TV. He's often referred to as Tommy Broadband. <laughs> Prior to his interactive experience, Tom worked in print for Time, Inc., Newsweek Magazine, and U.S. News and World Report, shadowing a little bit of my career, but not mine is not nearly as illustrious as Tom's. Mm -hmm. And it's my pleasure to welcome Tom Bosco to Rediscovering New York. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Where in upstate uh, New York are you from? I grew up in Albany, uh, a town called Gilderland, just outside a suburb of Albany, New York. Okay. And um, they say that home is where the heart is, <laughs> and you've been in the city now for almost a quarter century. Um, was there anything in particular that brought you to, to New York City from, yeah. from uh, the Tri-City area? You know, it just, uh, out of college, it just seemed like the right move growing up in upstate New York. I hadn't really experienced a, a lot of the big city, and I went to school in, uh, at Hartwick College, which is, which is in Oneonta, New York, and uh, I had a brother down in, in uh, New York City, uh, two brothers in, New York, in the New York City area, and uh, it just seemed like the next right move at the time. So... At the time. Yeah. <laughs> Any regrets? Oh, no. no, 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 not, not, no. None whatsoever. Uh, yeah. Well, before we, we talk about, about the Indian River Cafe, Indian Road Cafe, sorry, um, I got to ask you about, about your career in, in advertising <laughs> and marketing. Um, I spent 22 years in the industry, and I'm always intrigued by people who were in the same field as I was and into, went, went into something else. Uh, advertising and marketing seem to be a good training ground for so many things. What did you do in advertising and marketing before so you went I started? Car? Yeah, I started out selling print uh, for, I think my first serious uh, print job was with um, U.S. News, or no, with Success Magazine and then U.S. News and World Report. Uh, and then eventually I was fortunate enough to get involved uh, in digital media, like yourself, almost at its inception in 99 uh, with a company called Snowball.com and then the internet burst and uh, bust and then uh, I stuck with it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I went into online media in 96 and changed, uh, went from on, uh, digital media to real estate in 2007. Yeah. Um, what have you done in the online video space? <laughs> it's funny. I, um, I fell into this, by the way. I just have to be brutally honest. I literally was working for MSN which was a leading portal at the time, and video advertising or, or video was non-existent. And uh, the Gulf War broke out, and people were trying to stream the war, uh, the bombing of Baghdad. And enough people were trying to s stream it that, not that you would want to make an ad model out of that type of content, but we're like, hey, this might be scalable 
it might be the point where we have enough audience with the streaming that we can make an ad model out of it. And two weeks later, I had my best friend who ran the Procter & Gamble business and another friend who ran the General Motors business out of uh, Chicago. We flew in the Redmond, and we uh, began the launch of uh, what would be the first time a video ad was synced up with a video banner and, and what would be the, the first step toward the marketing and, uh, and consumer experience that would end up being uh, online video today. Wow, and that came out of people demanding news about the war. They really did, yeah. Wow. Wow. How did you you move into hospitality from the world of advertising? (laughs) How how did that happen? First of all, I'm Italian, so I think it's a natural (laughs) move. Uh, Full-blood Italian. Um, Especially where food's involved. Especially (laughs) when food's involved. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, you spend 20-something years in the media world, and, and you get a little bit older, and you start thinking, where, you know, what interests me? Uh, sometimes I think it was a little bit of courage. Sometimes I think it was a little bit of desperation. But I had other interests outside of advertising um, that I sometimes romanticized throughout my life. And then as I got older, I'm like, hey, I want to give this a shot. And, uh, and uh, it, you know, it wasn't like this big, bold step. And then I went out and did it the next week. It was something that was in the back of my mind for a long time. And uh, I wanted to try something different. Was your move into hospitality, was, did it also coincide with when you went into your own business, or did you work in the industry before you and your partners? Uh, this is the first restaurant I've ever been in. Uh, not eaten, but, you know, first one. <laughs> this is the first one I've uh, invested in. Yeah. Mm. Well, many of the guests on my show started their own businesses, um, but occasionally I have a guest who took something that somebody else started, acquired it, and, and gave it their own stamp and brought their own ideas. Mm. Um, you bought the, you and your partners bought the Indian Road Cafe about seven years ago, wasn't it? Uh, no, we just bought it about eight weeks ago. It was, oh, God. Yeah. oh, wow, okay. Yeah, I moved to Inwood seven years ago. Jason Minter started the Indian Road Cafe 11 I, okay. years ago. And uh, he's, my, uh, he's my business partner to this day. He's my co, uh, co-owner. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll talk about um, things you're doing in the restaurant in a bit, but I want to talk to you about Inwood. Um, what is it about the neighborhood that had you decide to move up there? Uh, yeah, from, from, from the Upper West Side. Yeah, I, uh, I kind of shake my head a little bit. It was an accident. I was at a Christmas party. Well, let me back up. I was living on 93rd and Broadway in a really nice rent-stabilized one-bedroom penthouse. And you gave that up? Yeah, I know. Wow. I can't believe it. And, you know, I, uh, I, uh, the building went co-op. I was uh, splitting time between Los Angeles and New York, and uh, they, they basically took me to court for three years to, to get the apartment. And I kept winning the court cases. But someone had said to me, you know, uh, maybe you ought to think about somewhere else to live. And uh, I had no intention of moving when I, when I went to a Christmas party and I brought that, this whole topic up. And someone said, you ought to check out Inwood. And I think they meant Inwood on Long Island, not Inwood at the time. And uh, I got it wrong, but I still went up and checked out Inwood, and I fell in love. Huh? Yeah. And you moved there seven years ago? Yeah. Um, did you particularly look for a business in the neighborhood to purchase or to get involved in? Uh, how, yeah, how did I did. That, I, uh, I originally, I was, uh, I was running a executive recruiting company that I started um, from a WeWork in Times Square as well as a home office. And I was spending a lot of time in coffee shops. And there was only one, there were two uh, establishments in Inwood. And, uh, and uh, I just, and I looked at one of them uh, to purchase about a year ago. And that started the process of wanting to own some sort of community-based food or coffee establishment in the neighborhood. You're not new to it, though. You've been doing the New York City uh, chili ball. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is your first business in hospitality. Uh, in, yes. Indian, Indian, Indian Row Cafe. Cafe. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the the New York City chili bowl. Yeah. I've never heard of a chili cook-off before. What? Really? Yeah. <laughs> I have not. I've so heard of cook-offs. I, but I, I hadn't cook-off. either, and I had a I had a vacation home up in Vermont for many years, and uh, they had a they had a chili cook-off up there that raised money for charity. And uh, when I moved up to Inwood, 
uh, boredom isn't the right way to put it, but I was uh, I was going through some personal things, and I had grown up in Albany, New York, uh, in uh, with uh, a mother and father that had instilled community service into us, and we we would do things like crop walks. These were things that we loathe as kids. <laughs> and uh, I thought to myself about the chili bowl up in Vermont that brought the community together in Ludlow, Vermont, and I said we ought to do something like that here. And I had the time to do it. I was starting a business. Uh, and I thought to myself, you know, what better way to take my mind off the stress of this business than if I spent some of my time starting a chili bowl in New York. And that's how it started. When is it? When is it chili cooking? Uh, this year it'll be November uh, 9th at 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, and it's always been at the Good Shepherd School Auditorium. If someone uh, wants to find out about it, how can they? Uh, uh, www.nycchilibowl.com and you get all the information there. And if you can make a chili and you think you want to enter, we'll take you. Actually, that's going to Saturday, which is uh, my <laughs> one day off. I think I'm going to put that on in my calendar. Yeah, uh, We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Tom Bosco of the Indian Road Cafe. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com We're back. To Rediscovering New York, we're journeying to Inwood today, and my second guest is Tom Bosco, co-owner of the Indian Road Cafe in Inwood. Um, Tom, you mentioned that the restaurant and the cafe are very much community focal points where people uh, come not just to eat and to drink, but also to, to feel part of the community in Inwood. What kind of special events or programming do you have? Yeah. Uh, I think the one that it coincides almost with your show is an event... Every Monday, we have a uh, every first Monday of every month, we have uh, we dedicate the evening to a program called Lost in Inwood, and we have two local historians that um, oh, wow. set up a screen uh -huh. and do presentations about the history of Inwood. And that's the first Monday of every the month. First Monday of every single month. At yeah. what time? And it's packed. Oh. it's packed. It, what time is it? When it starts at seven o'clock. So one should get there earlier to get a seat. Yeah, you gotta get there <laughs> early to get a seat. It's it's really interesting. I mean, it really dives into the history of the area, as your last guest showed, is is deep. Yeah. Um, and how can people find out about it? What's what's your, your we website have uh, uh, indiarowcafe.com. Okay, great, great. Um, moving on to the neighborhood itself. Um, what is it that you like being someone who moved from the Upper West Side, even though you might have been mistakenly directed? What is it that you love about Inwood? Yeah, it's the community. I'm smiling. You guys can't tell on the radio, but I'm smiling about it. No, you it. can. When someone yeah, smiles I, uh, on the yeah, You can tell. Yeah, you yeah, can't really yeah. tell. Uh, it is, you know, I grew up in upstate New York in a very community-based place where I knew my neighbors. And this is a community-based uh, community where where you know the shop owners many of the shop owners still live in in the neighborhood and where i know my neighbors 
Is there anything that you think makes Inwood unique as a neighborhood in the city? Oh, yeah. You touched on it first. It's natural beauty for, for, for sure. I mean, you, when you walk up Isham Street toward, toward Inwood Hill Park and even on Seaman Avenue, you get the sense that you're in a different... You don't even feel like you're in New York City. Um, you feel like you're somewhere else, maybe in like the suburbs of Boston or even in Seattle. And then when you get to the park... And you see the cliffs across the water, both in Spite and Dival. And then you could look past the Henry Hudson Bridge from the park and you could see the Palisades. You really get a sense that this is something special. And then you could feel a sense of energy there, too. I don't know if it's because the Indians were up there or because it's just further north or maybe I'm crazy. But there's a, there's a special energy that runs through the community up there. And I'll say, when you go up into the hills of Inwood Hill Park... You could literally, when you're up there looking down at the Hudson River, you really don't know what decade you're in. There's a couple of buildings across the way in a marina that, that kind of indicate a time period, but not much. Hmm. Yeah. So it's timeless. In it's timeless, yeah. You've been living there for seven years now. Have you seen any changes to the neighborhood? Oh, yeah. yeah. I, well, first of all, let me say, I moved to Vermilia Avenue. So most of the people that have moved up there in the last 10 years have moved west of Broadway. Uh, and I looked about at about 15 apartments west of Broadway. And the first, pers- first apartment I did look at was east of Broadway uh, on Vermilia Avenue. And uh, it was a little less gentrified at the time. That's the best way I put it. And I, I settled in on a fifth floor walk-up. And uh, I forgot your question. <laughs> uh, um, it was, do you think the neighborhood has changed oh, yeah, since you dramatically, moved there? Dramatically, dramatically. Uh, and uh, j- there's, there was one restaurant, I thought, maybe, maybe two restaurants. Yeah. In and the, Vermilion in, Avenue, for people who are not familiar with the uh, geography, is uh, east of Broadway, but uh, Indian Road is, is west of Broadway. Three blocks west of Broadway. It, it is the last residential building in the city, so the, the, the cafe actually sits on the park on the corner of Indian Road and, and 218th Street, and it is all residential blocks that lead from Broadway, west of Broadway, to, to, the, to the cafe. Do you know if most of your customers, it sounds like most of your customers live in the neighborhood, or do you have many people who come from outside Inwood? We to, definitely to do, because the park, the park these days attracts a lot of people, the history of the park. Uh, the bird watching that you guys uh, noted before. Uh, so, yeah, um, many people are starting to, to, to seek it out as a destination as well. The Columbia football field is right up there, so we get people all the time. The boathouse is across the street from the cafe, the, the Columbia football field, and all of this is right on the water. Mm. As a business owner and also as a resident, you, you and your partners bought the business just the last couple of months. Yeah, right? I, 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 it's really me and Jason. I... I uh, yeah, it's me. Uh-huh. I bought it uh, two months ago. Wow. Um, is there anything, as a, having lived in the neighborhood now for seven years, um, is there anything that you struggle with in Inwood at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, there's, there's definitely the struggle with a neighborhood in transition. Um, some people like it. Some people don't. I mean, uh, I always think I like change, but I don't think I've you know, always embraced it in my life, but, uh, but yeah, you, you could see the tension that, that it just got, re- just most of Inwood got rezoned for development, and there was a lot of tension last year on that. People fear that they're going to move out of their, you know, be forced out of their apartments. Um, so with any sort of development, same thing that happened on the Upper West Side, is just moving further north, and, and Inwood is starting to experience that right now. But the combination of the cultures... And the combination of the people in the area make it very, very unique. And the way it meets, way, the way it all comes together in that beautiful park, right? Mm. It's a very, very special place. Now, one question I like to ask my guests who, who own businesses in particular neighborhoods, if there's anything that surprises you about the neighborhood. Now, you've only been in business there for, yeah. uh, for, for two months. But as someone who's lived there for seven years, is there anything that, that, that will surprise you about, about Inwood? I, I think what I am been living there for seven years and I'm constantly in, I'm, I'm repeated I, I'm constantly in awe of the beauty of both the park, the water and the way the neighborhood sits on it um, and the people hmm. it is you could walk down the street people know each other they say hello it really feels like a neighborhood that um, 
Yeah, it's a very, very neighborhood feel. Hmm. As a new business owner, if someone were thinking about opening up their own business in the neighborhood, would you at this point oh, have yeah. any advice for them? Uh, well, it, uh, it's wide open. It's one of these things where people, I would, I would encourage it. Um, there's plenty of opportunity. We just had a great bakery called Chalk open up. Couple, people notice it, and, that, and that's that's what a business owner wants. It's like when a new place opens, or even when the Indian Road Cafe changed uh, hands, or, or I invested in it. People noticed it, and people came to support it. Uh, I'd walk down the street, and people would say things to me. So, if you're thinking about investing in the community, there are pl- many opportunities to invest, and it will get noticed. It sounds almost that it has uh, uh, elements of a small town feeling. Without a doubt, yeah. without a doubt. I, you know, it's funny. I, when I moved up there, the other opportunities, uh, uh, other places I looked were the Hudson River Valley, uh, and this is just. Oh, you about, did really? When you, I oh. did, just like yourself, and uh, and this this is very much has that kind of like small town feel to it. Mm. Wow. Well, we've been speaking with Tom Bosco. Tom is a new owner, uh, with he and his partner Jason, of the Indian Road Cafe. And um, a couple of things I do want to recommend that people look into the New York Chili Cook-Off on <laughs> November 9th. Um, and uh, also, uh, Tom, at one of the events that Tom hosts in, at, at his place on a regular basis, is uh, the first Mondays of each month at 7 o'clock. Um, what's called what? Lost in Inwood. Lost in Inwood. Uh, and you can read about it at Indian River Cafe, IndianRoadCafe.com. My God, that's yes. the second time I did that. My apologies. <laughs> well, we've, you've joined us today on our journey to Inwood. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, Jeff at RediscoveringNewYork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and also on Instagram. My Instagram handle is JeffGoodmanNYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. And one more note before we sign off, when I'm not hosting this show, I am indeed a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. We've had two engineers tonight, Sam Leibowitz and Kelly Kenlon. Thank you. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who was one of our guests on tonight's show. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 